0: You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net.
1: Today's scripture reading is in Nehemiah chapter 2. So if you could take out your phone or your Bible, uh, whatever you use to access God's word, that would be great. Nehemiah 2, and will be in verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let the letters be given to me to the governors of the providence beyond the river, that they may let me pass through it until I come to Judah." And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. This is the word of the Lord.
0: All right, let's pray together. God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we ask that you would now speak to us as your people. We've walked through this rhythm that we do every week of remembering your greatness and then our smallness and sinfulness, and then calling to mind your great grace and favor that we have not earned that you pour out on our lives. And now we say as people who have received your grace and been made right with you on the basis of Jesus, we want to live before you. We want your word to guide and direct our lives. And so as your sons and daughters, we say, speak to us this morning. I personally just ask that I would be a vessel in this moment of your spirit and that your word would, one, be rightly taught, and empowered by your spirit to your saints in this room. God, I pray this morning that you would help us understand your favor, what it is to have your favor, to see your hand working throughout our lives. And I pray especially that you would help us with spiritual eyes to discern what your favor looks like in our lives, even when we suffer. So speak oh God we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So in the year 1938 author Dale Carnegie wrote a book that went on to sell 30 million copies and it's so popular that it's still being read by people today some 100 years later. That book, maybe some of you have read or are familiar with, is called How to anybody know what? Gain friends and influence people. Has anyone read this book before? Uh, very, very popular book in this realm of kind of leadership and, and things like that. The sheer popularity of this book means that the author Dale Carnegie has tapped into something that humans deeply desire. If you're going to sell 30 million copies of something, and if people are still going to be reading it 100 years after it was written, that must mean that you've tapped into something that human beings deeply want. So what is it that Dale Carnegie tapped into that that we so want in a word I'll call it favor. Favor. This book is basically about people skills how to get people to like you, how to get people on your team, uh, essentially how to win people's favor. And the goal of that is, of course, not just to win popularity contests or so that you'll be liked. The goal of winning people's favor, of course, for Dale Carnegie is so that uh, they'll get behind you with the things that you want to accomplish. Uh, The goal of this book is so that you can find people's support and aid and help and favor in the things that you are pursuing. It can mean a world of difference, having the favor of people, especially powerful people, for the things that you want to accomplish in your life. Well, what does Nehemiah chapter 2 show us? Nehemiah chapter 2 shows us favor with the king. What we see right there in verse 5, where Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in your sight. Nehemiah had a goal, had something that he wanted to pursue, and what he needed in order to be able to pursue it was the favor of people, to which uh, he actually definitely found in this story, as we'll see, everything that Nehemiah needed in order to carry out his goal was given to him. So then the question I guess we would ask Nehemiah is, how did you find such favor with people? And not, not just ordinary people, I mean, Friends, Nehemiah finds favor with the single most powerful person in the world in his day. King Artaxerxes of Persia. Nehemiah finds favor in his sight. And he couldn't have read how to gain friends and influence people because that didn't come out for some 2,500 years later. So how is it then that Nehemiah found such favor with the king? What I hope we see this morning is that Nehemiah found such favor with the king through having the favor of someone much more powerful, much more significant than even King Artaxerxes. Ne- Nehemiah found favor with the God of heaven and earth. And so what I want to consider then is if, ne- if, if Dale Carnegie's book is about how to find favor with people, And Nehemiah shows us how to find favor with God. What does it look like to have favor with God And then how do we walk in God's favor in the everyday of our life? That's what I want to consider with you this morning. Just briefly, we'll look at what is God's favor? And we're going to see it illustrated in this story. What what does that mean to have God's favor? And then more practically and personally, how do we walk in God's favor? Because as significant as it is to have a powerful persons uh, in your corner, helping you out, aiding you, supporting you, How much more significant is it to have the God of the universe orchestrating and working through the events of your life to give you his support, aid, and help? And so uh, while it's one thing to have favor with people, this morning we'll consider what it is to have favor with God. Let's begin then by considering what, what is favor with, with, with uh, people in general? Just what is it to have someone's favor? And um, what I'll just do is just give a few kind of defining terms here. So on the one hand, it's to have their approval. If you've won someone's favor, that means that you've perhaps won their trust. Uh, uh, they view you in a positive light. And then practically what that means is when it comes to the needs that you have, they give you their support, their help, their aid. They will help you succeed in whatever it is that you are setting out to do. That's just gen- general favor, but, but what about favor with people? In Manassas, I think we actually have come to like a theological like, uh, understanding of what we, you know, a, a phrase that, that describes having favor with God. is when someone says that was a God thing. Have you all ever heard someone say that before? Or like, oh, that, that was such a God thing. I met this person here and they knew that person. That was uh, uh, such, a, such a God thing. What, what, what we're describing is just circumstances just coming together in just the right way and just the right moment. Some might interpret it as good luck or good karma or something like that, but we understand it to be something much deeper. What we mean when we say a God thing or to have God's favor is to have God's supernatural hand at work in the natural affairs of your life. Let me say that one more time. When we're talking about God's favor, what we mean is God's supernatural hand coming to bear on the natural or ordinary affairs of your life. So when we talk about God's favor or or maybe his providence, we're not so much talking about like a, a flashy miracle that takes place, you know, something that just stuns everyone. But when we're able to look back at the events of something happening and, and, and essentially leave ourselves saying, man, only God could have done that. Only God could have done that. He so orchestrated and worked through these events that, that it, it's without question that his supernatural hand was involved in the ordinary dealings of my life. And I could probably give you A thousand stories of God's favor working in my own life. You could probably have your own stories of Him just orchestrating and and putting things together in just the right way. But this story before us this morning is a perfect illustration of God's favor coming to bear on Nehemiah. And so let's just kind of recap it as a high level together to illustrate what it looked like when Nehemiah had God's favor. So the whole story begins with this deep burden that Nehemiah is carrying. He's burdened for his people back home in Jerusalem where they've begun rebuilding the temple, but the city itself is kind of in shambles still from the exile. The walls have been torn down. They're destroyed by fire. And so that leaves them vulnerable to attack and honestly, a bit of a laughingstock to the surrounding nations. He is deeply burdened by this, but he finds himself in a bit of a problem. Uh, there's really nothing that Nehemiah can do about this. So think about this on the one hand, he's a cupbearer to the king. He's a servant to the king of Persia. And I don't know this as a historical fact, I'm just guessing. When you are a servant to King Artaxerxes of Persia, you don't just turn in your two weeks notice, right? Like even if Nehemiah wanted to go back and help, what is he gonna to say to King Artaxerxes? King, it's been a joy. The wine here is outstanding, but I, I feel like God has put on my heart uh, a dream of working in the construction field. And so uh, consider this by two weeks. It's been a joy. If I could have a good reference on my way out, that would just be be wonderful. Like Nehemiah is not turning in a two weeks notice to King Artaxerxes. And even if he has permission to go rebuild the wall, where is he gonna find the resources to do that? Like, I don't know if anybody's checked the prices of lumber recently. Uh, you, you don't just kind of, you know, pool together the resources for a construction job on your own. And really, the people of Israel, they're, they're living as refugees at this time. They don't have a ton of resources to pool together in order for them to complete this project. And so that's where Nehemiah is at. And he's been praying now for a season And he's carrying this sadness before the king, and the king asks him a question. He first of all recognizes, Nehemiah, something's up with you. What's what's going on? You're not sick. What, What you have is a deep sadness that you're carrying. You have sadness of heart. And he responds and explains why he's sad, and he gets this golden opportunity. The king asks him, what are you asking? Essentially, the most powerful person in the world looks to Nehemiah and says, what do you want? And have any of you remember, maybe you remember as a kid, like, you know, you ask your parents something and you're sure the answer is going to be no. But to your shock, you ask it and they actually say yes. That's what happens with Nehemiah. He asks the king, king, can I go back to Judah and rebuild the wall? And the king says, first of all, he wants to know some details just like a good parent would. Well, what what time will you be back? And uh, tell me, you know, how long you'll be gone and all of those kinds of things. And, um, he gets permission to go, but he recognizes in that moment, man, I'm on a roll. Uh, King, hey, hey, by the way, could you give me some letters that first of all show me, that it, show people that it's approved that I can go? And I would love to, to uh, uh, visit this guy Asaph in this forest and, and get some timber. Could you just tell him to give us any, any amount of lumber that we need? And again, to Nehemiah's shock, the answer is yes, First of all, you can go, you can, you, you can turn in your two weeks and head on to Judah. And second of all, every single material need that you have will be financed by the king of Persia. Wow. Now, when someone in the world sees that, here's what they're probably thinking to themselves. Man, Nehemiah, are you lucky? Uh, or maybe they're thinking to themselves, wow, the king must have uh, you know, really woken up on the right side of the bed that morning for him to give you all of that, but no, Nehemiah has spiritual eyes and he's able to see what's really going on here. If you look with me at the bottom of the chapter or the the reading we just had, down at the bottom of verse eight, it says, the king granted me what I asked for because I'm lucky and he woke up on the right side of the bed. No, the king granted me what I asked for because the good hand of my God was upon me. That's God's favor, That's God's providence at work. Not through some huge miracle that he works. He didn't give the king leprosy until he let Nehemiah go. No, just by working through the natural affairs of that event, God so worked that Nehemiah was able to not only leave, but have everything that he needed. That's what God's favor looks like. It looks like having God's help, his support, his aid, through orchestrating the circumstances of our life that it turns out to our success and our prosperity. So then, I want to zoom out and then ask this question. That's what, if that's what God's favor looks like, Him working through the ordinary affairs of our life, how do we then walk in God's favor? What can we learn from Nehemiah's example that shows us how we can uh, position ourselves to have God's favor in our own circumstances? Uh, in the comings and goings of our life. And I've got four things I think that are helpful for us to learn or to apply from our own life here uh, as it pertains to walking in God's favor. Uh, Here's the first one. How do we walk in God's favor in our lives? Number one, we do it by choosing to wait instead of manipulate. Let me say that one more time. We do it by choosing to wait on the Lord instead of manipulating and working, uh, you know, through our own ability and resources. So here's how these chapters kind of read quickly if we don't look at the details. It looks like Nehemiah hears the news, he prays this eloquent prayer, and then two minutes later the king is like, yep, go. That's actually not how it transpired. So it says here that Nehemiah, back in chapter one, received the news of the wall being broken down in the month of Chislev. And then chapter two begins by saying in the month of Nissan. How much time was elapsed there? At least four months. So this is not Nehemiah praying a quick prayer and then everything falls into place and he goes, Nehemiah probably felt some angst and, and maybe a little bit of, temp, of a temptation to just jump to action. Well, the wall's there. Maybe I can just sneak away and, and help them do something. Or, or maybe I can try to come up with the resources on my own to make this thing happen with my own ability and my own resources, but that's not what he does. He doesn't just jump into action and start manipulating and working things with his own resources. He waits. He waits on the Lord patiently in prayer. And as we walk with God through life, especially in the difficult, challenging moments of our life, we will always be presented with sort of this fork in the road. You can either jump to action and do everything in your own strength out of anxiety and worry, You can take a step back and allow the Lord to work on your behalf. You can get to work and just do something or patiently pray and wait on his hand to work it out with his favor and his providence. There's Countless examples, especially in the Old Testament of this, Abraham is probably the perfect case study of someone who at times just tried to figure it out on his own and at times waited on the Lord to work and provide. So uh, for example, he gets promised that he's going to have this child. He's looking at his watch. He's looking at the age of himself and his wife and figures, okay, this isn't going to work. He takes matters into his own hands and has a child through his servant woman, Hagar, which just produced problems and complications for him later on in life. Or other examples of him just taking matters into his own hand. When he was at at a bit of a threat from the kings and leaders of his day, he would just come up with a story, make a lie up about his wife being his sister so that uh, he wouldn't get killed. And that kind of created a complicated situation. All the while, even while he tries to do it all on his own, God works. But then we see at other points in his life where he chooses to just trust in God's hand, trust in his favor, so when Abraham is told to leave his homeland and go uh, to the place where God would show him, he, he simply takes that step of faith and he, he waits on the Lord to act. The, the, the most difficult moment, the greatest test of Abraham's life of whether he would take matters into his own hand or trust the Lord is when he's called to, to sacrifice his son. He, he could have come up with a scheme or a plan, but what does he say in that moment? God will provide. God will provide. I've learned through my life that I can take matters into my own hands and manipulate, or I can wait on the Lord to provide. All of us are going to be presented, especially in the challenges of our lives, opportunities to patiently wait on him and to act uh, on our own with our own strength and resources. I can remember in the challenges of COVID, a a friend of mine giving me an illustration that's always stuck with me since then. We were going through all the challenges of that time, right? Plenty of opportunities to trust God where it oftentimes we would fail and try to take matters into our own hands. So we'd have just interpersonal problems or trying to figure out financial problems with the church or try to figure out a place to meet. All of these moments where we're just kind of in this difficult moment uh, where we can either act and do something or wait on the Lord. And he gave me this illustration. Maybe you'll remember it in your own challenges in your life. He said, there's two ways you can get through the Amazon, the Amazon forest, not Amazon Prime, the, 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 the original Amazon. There's two ways you can get through it. Um, avoid, this, avoid the Prime, but the, if you were to go through the Amazon jungle, this is, this is uh, uh, two ways you could get through it. You can pick up a machete and you can just start swinging that thing. You can start hacking through the bushes and the brush and you can just wear yourself out as you inch along the jungle step by step. That's, that's one way you could get through the Amazon jungle. Or you can get a boat, you can put it in the Amazon River, and you can let the river carry you through the whole thing. What are you going to do with the challenges and the obstacles you face in your life? You're going to pick up a machete, move a couple inches, and wear yourself down to the bone? Or do you just sit back and wait on the Lord to act? Let Him carry you through it. It's an opportunity, it's a challenge we'll all be presented with. What exactly does it look like to wait on the Lord? I don't don't know, it's actually unique to your situation. I think sometimes it has a lot more to do with your heart posture. Are you in a position of angst and worry and just do something? Are you in a position of steadiness where you are waiting on God's hand to move? I've seen a lot of examples of this show up in our church. I think one of the biggest one is in seasons of singleness. If God has not brought you a spouse yet, How are you gonna go through that season? You're gonna pick up a machete and just figure it out on your own and just perhaps bend God's word a little bit to to make it work in your favor so you can find someone to marry? You're gonna patiently wait on the Lord, let Him carry you. With marriage problems where you wish your spouse would be something, are you gonna pounce and try to manipulate and, and work through that and change your spouse on your own? Or sit back, wait on the Lord, allow the Spirit of God to do the work of convicting? And I don't know, these look different in different situations. I'm not giving you a a clear roadmap on what exactly this looks like, but these are all moments of temptation. Will we trust in the Lord or will we we do it all in our own strength? This would be a great discussion in discipleship group if you're at a sort of moment in your life with just an obstacle you're trying to figure out to welcome some people in, uh, some wise voices that could help. Hey, I think in your situation what grabbing the machete looks like is this and what sitting in the boat looks like is this. So how do we walk in God's favor in our life? One, choosing to wait on him instead of just manipulating everything in our own strength. Number two, how do we walk in God's favor in our life? I think it's by involving him in the day-to-day details of our life. Something that we're tempted to think that he actually doesn't care about. We can involve God in the day to day details of our life. There's two types of prayer that are exemplified in Nehemiah. One is a long season of prayer. We see that in chapter one, where day and night he's crying out to the Lord and he's offering these long prayers. Uh, That that could maybe be described as a season of prayer. Then we see in chapter two a different type of prayer. Some people call it an arrow prayer. Have Have you ever heard of that before? Here's the situation. He, he's sad, the king asks why, he explains, then the king says, what are you asking for? And instead of just quickly giving an answer, he just quickly in that moment turns to God, God, please help me, is probably what he said. What do I say? Just, just a quick prayer in that moment. I've come to learn more recently to pray these kinds of prayers all the time. And, and the main reason why, if you could keep this between you and me, through most of life, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've got no clue what I'm doing, like, as a pastor, uh, running this little business that we have, like, 90, 90% of the time, no idea what I'm doing. I'll be in a meeting with one of you, and we're talking about something, and I just quit, like, God, I have no idea what to say. Would you please help me in this moment? Uh, I hate to break that to you, but, that, but that's, that's the reality, like, premarital counseling or something. Like, I don't, I don't know. I've never thought of that. God, help me just in this moment. Would you help me uh, in this? Or even just something very practical, trying to figure out a financial challenge or a, 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 a difficult moment at work, something like that. Did you know you can be like Nehemiah and you can just invite God in to the details of your life? Yes, you should have seasons of prayer where you are focused on him, fasting, prayer, day and night. And then he also welcomes you with that challenge at work with the meltdown that's happening in your house with your kids, uh, with that awkward relational situation. He welcomes you to come to him with whatever it might be. We see that in Nehemiah. He just welcomes God into this uh, this specific moment in his life. Uh, hear, hear what um, Proverbs 16, three says. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. All of your plans, God will establish whatever you want. No, probably not. But the things that he's called you to, if you will just commit it to the Lord, Lord, I need you here in this situation, in this meeting, in this work obstacle. I need you here on this test that I'm about to take. Please help me. It says that he will, uh, your plans will be established. Nehemiah shows us an example of walking in God's favor by just welcoming God into his life, into the day-to-day details. You can do the same. Number three, how do we welcome God's favor in our life? Well, we, we welcome God's favor in our life with selflessness, with selfless, selfless plans, selfless pursuits. Uh, so when, when we come to God asking for his favor, his blessing, his help, with some selfish pursuit you have in your life, he may answer it, like he, he may bless you with that new car or whatever it is, that vacation you want, possibly... But like, honestly, probably not. Like, maybe, but, but probably not. But here's what I can say quite confidently. If you will go to the Lord with some request that actually has very little to do with you, that's about blessing someone else, you can have a high degree of confidence that he is eager to bless you and give you his favor in that moment. That's what happens with Nehemiah in this story. So he's in the presence of the most powerful person in the world, and it's almost like a genie-in-the-bottle type moment. The king of Persia goes to Nehemiah, basically like a blank check opportunity. Nehemiah, what are you asking? If it's me in that moment, I probably just have amnesia immediately about everything happening in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, the people back in Jerusalem... um, man, just like a million dollars. Do you think think I could have that? Like just, that's all, that's it. We just leave it at a million. If I could get that tax-free, that would would be great. Maybe maybe that's what's going through my mind in that moment. But of course, what's Nehemiah focused on? In this opportunity uh, to do something, to have uh, the king's favor, he remembers his people. He remembers the trouble that they are in, uh, the difficult moment that they are in. And he asks for favor so that he might be a blessing to them. This is counterintuitive to everything the world will tell you. So, so the world will tell us constantly that in order for you to be happy, for you to be blessed, for you to succeed and prosper... Focus on your self-care, on, on yourself first, right? Like, anybody do a self-care Sunday? I've heard that's a hashtag going around. Like, focus on self-care, and then you'll be happy. And there's a time and a place, of course, to, to, to you know, do things that help you personally. That, that's all right and good. But what I've found in my own life, and as I've witnessed people far more mature than me, is that the greatest moments of happiness, the greatest moments of God's favor show up when we put our attention on someone else when we put our attention on someone else. The, the happiest church members that I've just seen over now years of walking with New City are those who don't show up at the door saying, hey, here's like my three or four basic needs that I have here. I'm looking for a community, some good teaching, the music needs to be pretty good, uh, you know, and uh, whatever, like th- those are the things that I want. Those end up not being the, the happiest people at New City. You know the most happy people are in the life of a local church? Those who show up at the door just saying, who has a need here? Who, who needs help? Uh, Where is there a need? Where is there a problem? Where can I show up to serve? We would think by the message we get from the world, those would be the most drained, empty people, when in fact, those are the people filled with the most joy. Why? Because we walk in God's favor when we look at the needs of other people, not just ourselves. How about marriage? The happiest marriages are not the ones in which people say, hey, here's the three or four things that I really need to get out of this marriage. The happiest marriages are the ones where you have, especially if you have two people saying this thing in the marriage, you are going to have a thriving marriage. My greatest joy is my spouse's joy. You ever consider that in, in your marriage, in, 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 in your uh, covenant marriage that you're in, uh, where you're able to say, man, my, ha- my greatest happiness is the happiness of my spouse. When you have people showing up at the table saying that, man, marriages thrive, they flourish Nehemiah uh, had the good hand of God on his life because his life was focused on others. So how do we walk in God's favor? We've looked at three things so far. We've seen it illustrated with his story with the king. We've said that to walk in God's favor, we wait on God to act. We don't just jump to action with our own resources and wisdom. Um, Number two, we can involve God in the details of our life. We can walk in his favor, number three, by being selfless, by having an orientation towards other people. And then finally, the most counterintuitive approach to walk in God's favor is this, to embrace suffering, to embrace hardship, difficulty, and suffering. So Nehemiah chapter two is this story about God's favor. We saw him go from penniless and powerless to do anything about Jerusalem to now being commissioned by the king to go build the wall and having every resource that he needs in order to make it happen. So you would think that given all the favor that Nehemiah had, surely his life must have been absent from suffering. Because we think that suffering, difficulty, hardship, indicates a loss of God's favor when so often for his children, the opposite is true. There are different forms of suffering we can face in this world. There's the most obvious physical suffering, having a physical battle that you fight with, with actual pain. There's relational suffering. There's a sense of alone, loneliness, abandonment betrayal. There's material suffering, maybe financial loss or uh, kind of in this constant state of being in need. There's psychological suffering, depression, crippling anxiety. That's what seems to be happening with Nehemiah in this story. He's had at least four months of such grief and sadness about what's going on with his people that the king himself can tell. And notice, the king notices that this isn't just sort of a a hard day that you're having, Nehemiah. He describes it with strong words, maybe words you might use to describe your own psychological struggling right now. The king says to Nehemiah, what you are facing is nothing short of sadness of heart. Nehemiah is under some weight. He's depressed. He's he's suffering psychologically. And whatever our area of suffering we might face in our own life, what I've come to realize personally and as a society, even as Christians, we have no idea what to do with suffering. We've got no idea what to do with hardship in our life because we've been sold the bill of goods of prosperity. Everything should go well with you if you do everything right. We've got no idea what to do with hardship. And so one thing we try to do is just ignore it. Maybe there's something really hard going on in your family. And I just notice with a, a, a lot of people, even in my own family, we just try not to talk about it. Or if we have something really hard, we just try to medicate it and numb it down as much as possible so we can just avoid it. We have no idea what to do with suffering. But here's what I want you to understand this morning. Number one, suffering is a part of our walk with Jesus. Suffering is a part of our walk with Jesus. What does Paul say to the Philippian church? It has been granted to you not only to, to believe in his name. Wow, that's awesome. What else do we get with this package? But to suffer for his sake. Suffering is a part of our walk with Jesus. And please get this second point. Suffering does not mean the absence of God's favor but it very well may be the instrument through which you experience his favor more deeply. Suffering or hardship in your life does not indicate an absence of God's favor, but very well may be an instrument through which you experience his favor all the more deeply. Listen, if suffering indicated a lack of God's favor, what we would expect to see is the most favored people in the Bible would be the ones who suffer the least. When what do we see? The opposite is true. Think about just the Apostle Paul. I don't know that anybody had God's hand on their life quite as much as he did. He was a walking miracle. Everywhere he went, God's hand was involved. So things must have always gone well with him, right? No, man, like half his letters are him describing the pain and suffering that he faces as a part of his walk with Jesus. And if Paul weren't enough, what about the most favored human being on the pages of your Bible? Jesus himself. Listen to these two prophecies concerning the work that the Messiah would do. And note that they are not contradictory. So concerning Jesus, Isaiah 51 verses 1 through 3, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's God's favor, his hand on the Messiah. The Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then what does verse two begin with? And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came proclaiming so that's one description of Jesus. Listen to this one. Isaiah 53 verse 3, He was despised and re- rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What is Jesus often described as? the one who brought God's favor? Yes, he's also described as the suffering servant. Jesus's grief and favor are not contradictory. In fact, they're instrumentally connected. Suffering is often the tool, the instrument that God uses to release his favor more deeply in our lives than we would have ever experienced if he just left us alone in the first place. And I think the reason that we, I think as Christians, struggle to understand the role of suffering in our life and we're very confused when it's there and we're not quite sure what to do with it is because we don't have a full grasp of how we experience the gospel in our lives. Can I invite you to turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3? Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives a description here of two ways that we personally experience the gospel. One we are very familiar with. I think the second one we are not so familiar with. At least, I think most of us. The first way we experience the gospel is by believing it. Listen to what Paul says about the good news of Jesus. He says, and be found in him, talking about Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. He says it again to reiterate, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So he's saying here he's having an experience of the gospel through faith. He's experiencing it by believing it. That's the first way you and I are called to, to apply the gospel to our lives, is by saying what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection, I believe it. And then all of its benefits are then accounted to us. That's the first way we experience the gospel, believing it. The second and more uh, neglected way we experience the gospel is by becoming like it. We believe the gospel, and we as Christians, as we follow Jesus, become like the gospel. Listen to Paul go on here, then in verse 10. He describes first how he believed him that I may know him. He wants to know Jesus intimately. And he says, know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming what? Becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul believed the gospel at his conversion and then he became like the gospel a thousand other times in his life through suffering. There was times where, brought, where Paul was brought to his lowest of low in grief, difficulty, and pain, only then to be resurrected on the other side with God's favor and power and presence in his life. We too are called not only to believe the gospel, but to know it experientially at times through experiencing suffering, and then on the other side of that suffering, God's resurrecting life, and favor. But we have to, in order to experience God's favor in the suffering that we face, we have to be at a place of willingness to experience it, willingness to embrace it. So if there's anyone in our generation that understands embracing suffering in the, in the gospel, becoming like the gospel, it's probably Joni Erickson Tata. Maybe some of you are familiar with her. Um, She was a believer in her teenage years at the age 17 through a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. She has spent her entire life in a wheelchair from age 17, unable to use both her hands and her feet. And she describes her story at the early part of her life of absolutely hating God, hating her wheelchair, wanting nothing to do with any of this, saw no purpose, what God would allow this to happen in her life. She wanted to die. She so hated her circumstances. She just could not comprehend how this could have any good role whatsoever in her life until someone came to her and read what we just read, Philippians chapter 3, where it was explained to her that she was called as a follower of Jesus not only to believe the gospel, but also through suffering to become like the gospel. And this friend of hers communicated that if you will embrace this suffering, God will use it to not only pour out favor on your life, but thousands of others as you show them what it is to embrace suffering in your life. So the story goes on to her finally beginning to see that God is not absent from this. God has a purpose in this. God is going to use this suffering in my life in a way to make me know Jesus more deeply than I ever could have before and to use me powerfully in the life of others. And she tells this story of being, you know, 17 or 18. She's at this uh, train station in Baltimore and it's late. She's out with some of her friends from Young Life, and they're just having a good time. This is one of the first good times she's had in a very long time, and they're out late, and the security guard comes up to him and the, them, and the security guard says, what are you girls doing here? You have no business in this place. Get out of here right at once, and he looks at Joni, and he says to her, and you put that wheelchair back where you found it, young lady, <laughs> and so they all kind of look at each other for a second. She says, but sir, this is, this is my wheelchair. And he said, I don't want to hear anything from you. You put that back and the, all the girls start laughing and kind of giggling with themselves. And, and then he finally realizes his mistake and just tells them, you all need to get out of here right away. Well, one of her friends said to her that night, um, Joni, you, you said something for the first time. You said something since your accident that, I, that I've never heard before and I, I just want to thank you for it. What did she say? She said the words, my wheelchair for the first time. She said that she embraced her suffering, and her friend said that that's actually helping me to deal with the problems that I have in my own life. The author who told this story says the following to us Joni received the wheelchair. She didn't push away the fellowship of his sufferings. We are called to suffer with him. Likewise, God has given us all a wheelchair of sorts, it might be a critical spouse. A wayward child, an always tight budget, or the prospect of lifelong singleness. These chairs are doors to knowing Jesus in ways we never could have imagined. But they must be received. We can't push them away. We need to say with Joni, this is my wheelchair. As Christians, we don't get to choose what cross we carry. You can choose how you're going to respond to it. You can recognize, like Joni, that God has a plan of favor to flow through you even in the midst of suffering. Or like Nehemiah, that uh, realized that God had a plan and favor to flow even through his depression. I don't know how you're suffering this morning, but it doesn't mean that God is absent. In fact, this side of eternity, suffering is often one of the clearest signs that we as his followers have found favor in his sight. Because, brothers and sisters, you can be sure of this. If you share in a death like his, you can be sure that you'll also share in a resurrection like his as well. So as we take communion this morning, we're going to remember that God's favor flows through suffering. Jesus suffered more than we will ever experience and as a result, God's favor has flowed to our lives in a way that it will never, ever be taken away. So you can remember this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have God's favor, not because of the right things you've done or uh, you know, you've, you've held it all together, you have God's favor, favor through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you are suffering this morning, you can take that meal reminded that God has a purpose in whatever suffering that you're facing those tangible elements are a reminder that it's not pointless and that there is there is a resurrection on the other side. So come on forward this morning, take the meal that symbolizes suffering, this, that symbolizes God's favor that comes through suffering. And I'll just say this very briefly, if you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, to remain in your seat, but to hear the invitation from God to experience his favor in your life. We can experience God's favor through all the things that I've described this morning, but it all begins by experiencing God's favor, his love, his acceptance, not through anything that we do, but, what through, but through what Jesus has already done on our behalf. So here this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation to receive God's favor, you receive that by believing in his Son, how he suffered for you and he died for you. Would you repent of your sins this morning and turn to Jesus as the only one who can save and deliver you? For the rest of us, come forward, suffering or not, come forward to this table. Remember this meal of God's favor that's been given to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can come forward when you're ready. Let me just pray for us. Lord, thank you first and foremost, that we have your favor eternally through Jesus. Not through anything that we've done, but because you chose to give it to us through grace. Grace means undeserved favor, and all of us have undeserved favor from you in our lives. Lord, help us now to position ourselves in such a way that we have your favor in just the comings and goings of our life. And especially, I just pray that that anyone in this room this morning that is in a, a time of suffering, whether it's physical, financial, psychological, relational, whatever suffering is being faced this morning, God, would they be able to say with Paul that if we share in a death like his, we will also share in a resurrection like his as well. So meet us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.